Welcome to the Arise Church Podcast. At Arise, we're a community of imperfect people, pursuing and experiencing a transformative relationship with Jesus and one another. For more information, you can find us online at ariseonline.org. Thanks for listening. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, we're going to be there this morning. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, that's no problem. The words will be here on the screen. But we are in week four of our Easier Said series. We're talking about how following Jesus is hard to do and the fact that so many people in so many churches paint following Jesus and being a follower of Christ and coming into a relationship with him is all sunshine and roses and easy. Then you get in and you start to dig into God's word and you realize that it's actually a lot easier said than done. A lot of the things that Jesus calls us to do and calls us to live out are really hard to do because it kind of fights against our human nature and goes against the grain of culture. So we're gonna talk about one of those things today and it's gonna be kind of a fun morning. It's a a topic and a passage of scripture that I've come to love in the last few years as I've looked at it from a new perspective and understood some cultural context. So if you're a history nerd, you're gonna love today because we're gonna nerd out big time and we talk about history and context. It's gonna be a really fun morning. But Matthew chapter five, verse 38 You probably, whether you grew up in church or not, you've probably heard some of the language in this verse before. It says, you have heard heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, Go with him two miles. So you see it there, it says, you have heard that it was said. So what is Jesus talking about? Well, he's talking about the fact that this eye for an eye language is referenced three times in the Torah. The first time it's referenced is in the book of Exodus. You can see it here on the screen. It says, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for foot, hand hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for Stripe. So Jesus here is talking in Matthew chapter 5 to a primarily Jewish audience. And remember that Matthew was writing to a primarily Jewish audience. So when he says, you have heard it said, these are people that would have been familiar with the Torah. And this eye for an eye language for them would have taken them back to these books, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, we'll get to in just a minute. But we also have to realize that he was speaking to a people that were occupied by the Romans. So there were probably some Roman uh, soldiers that were in the margins. There were some Gentiles and a Greek audience that would have heard this as well. So he's saying, you have heard it said, and the first time this is mentioned in the Torah is in the book of Exodus. The next time is in Leviticus. And Leviticus says this, if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, Tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. And then the final time it's referenced in the Torah is in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 19. You can see it here, your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Good morning, welcome to Arise. Easier said, right? Now, when we read this, at first glance for us in a 21st century world, we would say, you know, this seems incredibly barbaric, incredibly uh, cruel and unfair and pre-modern. But think about it. If someone hits you, what's your natural response? 
to get even or maybe to one-up them? Let's be honest. What's your natural response? It's a little bit of both, right? You want to get even or sometimes, you know, if they hit you once, you want to hit them twice. There's a little bit of John Wick in all of us. We all want some revenge. Um, it's just the way we're wired. And if you don't believe me, come hang out with my seven-year-old and my four-year-old son, and we can live this out in my home, and you can watch it all take place, because this is just the way that we are wired. Because the reality is, is that the bent of the human condition is not to seek justice in a court of law, but our bent is for revenge and for violence. So you give me a black eye, I'm gonna give you two. You burn down my barn, I'm gonna kill your family, you fly a plane into my building, I am going to attack your country. Now, note in the Torah, when this eye for an eye language shows up three times, note that this is given as a command for a judge and a jury. This is not a command for the victim of the crime. This is not a command for the victim to go out and seek justice on their own. This is a command for a court of law. So what this teaches us here, even though it seems pre-modern and a little bit weird and cruel to us, it's, it's a way to, in a moment, when you've been wronged, someone's done something to you, to slow the process down, to bring in a judge, to bring in a jury, and to make sure that justice is done, to make sure that the punishment fits the crime. In legal jargon, this is known as lex talionis. Lex talionis, this is the law of retaliation. And this is a key facet of our justice system today. It was a key facet of the justice system of Jesus's time as well. Now, in, two, in 2000 BC, thereabouts when the Torah was put together, we have to understand that this was incredibly ahead of its time. This was unbelievably progressive and, and, and a new way to be human and a humane way to deal with injustice. But what Jesus does, what's really interesting about Matthew chapter five, is Jesus takes this command, this command that his Jewish audience would have been familiar with, he takes it and he sets it aside. He takes it and he says, that was then, this is now. And what's interesting, if you go back to the beginning of Matthew chapter five, Jesus rattles off a series of like five commands saying, you have heard it said this, now this, and what he does with those previous five commands over here is he takes the commands and then he takes them a step further. But what's interesting with this eye for an eye language is he takes it and he sets it aside all together. So why does he do that? He's saying, you know, this has a place in our legal system. This has a place in the first century legal system of the Jewish world, but it no longer has a place in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ, because we are, as his followers, and this is what Jesus was telling his audience, you are to be a city on a hill. You are to be a light to the world. You are to display a new way to be human. So where the Torah restricts retaliation, Jesus, as he sets this command aside, forbids it altogether. So why would he do this? Why would he set this aside? There are many reasons, and one I wanna talk about today is that at best, all this command could do, all this eye for an eye command from the Torah and this scripture in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy that we just did, at best, all it could do was keep violence in check. Because as a general rule, violence begets more violence. As a general rule, violence begets more violence because what happens is violence feeds 
on its own energy. This is a theological truth, this is a psychological truth, this is a sociological truth, and it's simply common sense. Mark Twain puts it this way. In Huckleberry Finn, he says this. What's a feud? Why? Where was you raised? Don't you know what a feud is? Never heard of it before. Tell me about it. Well, says Buck, a feud is this way. A man has a quarrel with another man and kills him. Then that other man's brother kills him. Then the other brothers on both sides goes for one another. Then the cousins chip in, and by and by, everybody's killed off, and there ain't no more feud. But it's kind of slow, and it takes a long time. There is the human condition. And in theological, sociological terms, this is the idea of the myth of redemptive violence. The myth of redemptive violence. It's a myth because it's not true. And here's the myth. Here is the lie. That the best way to fight violence is with more violence. But the truth is that the best that violence can do, and in a best case scenario, fighting violence with more violence can simply keep violence in check. But in reality, in kind of the worst case scenario that we see day in and day out across our world and in our own lives for certain people, is that what it does is it just keeps violence in circulation and it feeds on its own energy and it begins to grow. So what does Jesus say about this? In verse 39, he says this, Matthew 5, 39, but I say to you, and this is kind of this verbial first century rabbi language of saying, um, this is what you think it means. So what Jesus is about to say, is he's saying this is what you think it means, but listen, this is what it actually means. Verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, this resist language, do not resist the one who is evil, this is very slippery language to translate from the Greek to the English, and it's very easy for us to misread, and I wanna talk about it for just a minute, and here's why. In the 1600s, whenever King James was translating the Bible into the English language, this word for resist was translated, or this phrase was translated as do not resist. Now, depending on how cynical you are, and I'm very cynical, so I'll just put those cards on the table. Depending on how cynical you are, this was translated as do not resist because it was a way for King James to subjugate the people under the British monarchy, depending on how cynical you are, of course. Either way, New Testament scholars agree that this is a lousy way to translate this verse. And it's unfortunate because what it does is it makes Jesus sound like what he's saying here is just simply roll over and play dead. But that's not at all how it reads because it makes no sense because Jesus goes on in his life and in his ministry to resist violence right and left. But by the, the means by which he resists violence is through nonviolence. Now, do not resist. The Greek word for resist there is this Greek word, you can see it on the screen, antistani. Antistani, everybody say antistani. Now, the proper translation for that word is to engage in revengeful or violent retaliation. Another New Testament scholar puts it this way, do not take revenge on or do not retaliate vengefully using violent or evil means. So in rereading this scripture, do not resist the one who is evil. It's better read, do not engage in revengeful or violent, or, or violent retaliation with the one who is evil. Or in a simple way, probably the best way because N.T. Wright said it and whatever N.T. Wright says is always the best thing. 
He says, don't use violence to resist evil. Don't use violence to resist evil. And I believe that this truly captures the heart of what Jesus is saying here. So in tonight, to engage in vengeful or violent retaliation, the next word in this sentence, the next, next Greek phrase in this sentence is to ponero, that is the one who is evil. So don't engage in violent retaliation with the evil person or the one who is evil. So Jesus here is teaching us, how do you interact with evil people in the world? And so for the first century Jew, for his audience, this would have been a Roman soldier. For us in our world today, this would be ISIS. This would be North Korea. This would be a white supremacist. Or maybe a little bit closer to home, this may be kind of a nasty neighbor or coworker that you have to deal with. So how do you deal with the toe ponero in your life, the evil person. So how do you deal with that? Jesus says, well, there's a kind of a negative and a positive answer to that question. Negative, not in bad and good, but negative in the sense of something you don't do and positive in the sense of something that you do. So the negative answer, how do you deal with an evil person? The negative response that Jesus would offer here is this, not with violence, not with violence. So if not with violence, then what is it? The positive answer is to get creative, to find an alternative non-violent solution to the problem. This is what the author Leo Tolstoy called breaking the chain of evil. I love that language, breaking the chain of evil. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor and a theologian who lived under the rule and the reign of the Nazi regime in the 30s and 40s in Germany, put it this way, evil will become powerless when it finds no opposing object, no resistance, but instead is willingly born and suffered. Evil meets an opponent for which it is not a match. And John Howard Yoder, who is a theologian and author and professor from Duke University, said this, what is wrong with the world is most fundamentally that people respond to evil with evil. The iron necessity of retaliation, that's his language for lex talionis, the iron necessity of retaliation intends to preserve human society from chaos, but in reality, it guarantees at best, at best, a continuing chain of evil. At worst, it escalates like pouring oil on fire. Non-retaliation is the only way to break the chain of causation. So we're gonna deep dive here. We're gonna get a lot of cultural context and history as we look at Matthew 5, 38 through 41. And my hope for us today is that this is probably something that you've heard before, but that your eyes will be opened to a new truth. And our goal is to understand simply what would Jesus's original audience, what would the original hearers, as Jesus taught this, what would they have heard? What would they have understood Jesus to say? So imagine, if we could, that Canada invaded us. That Canada invaded us and they overthrew the US Army. I know this has a suspension of a lot of belief here. <laughs> we had to use your imagination here. And that the reason they've been so quiet for so long up north is they've been planning, okay? And they got together and they said, it's boot time we do something about those people down south. <laughs> so they invade us, they conquer us, they subjugate us, and they occupy our land. And they force us to eat maple syrup with every meal and watch hockey. It's just an awful world to imagine, okay? So they've come in. We are now under Canadian rule. Now, because we're occupied, 
and their army is here, they have to fund their army. They have to have money to support their troops and to support their military. So what they do is they levy a tax on us, a tax that's about twice what we already pay to the, our federal government. So as Americans, we have to then continue to pay our tax to our federal government, and then twice as much, or just double that, we also have to pay that to the Canadian government to fund their military occupation of the U.S. So who would be in financial dire straits if they had to pay two to three times the amount of income tax that they're currently paying? I think we probably would all be in dire straits. Um, the reality is, historically, this is the first century Jew. This is the first century Jew that lives in Israel or Palestine. The Roman Empire has come in, they have conquered them, they have occupied their land, and the Israelites had to pay their tax to Israel. They were then levied a tax by the Roman Empire and they had to pay them a tax. And most conservative estimates say that they were taxed between 75 and 80% of their income. So this put them in a huge economic crisis as a country. And the problem for them was as a Jew, was as God's chosen people, they were told going back to Father Abraham that they were blessed to be a blessing. So these Jews in Israel were living in the promised land. They were holding on to the truth that was given to Abraham in the book of Genesis, that they were blessed to be a blessing, but now they're occupied, now they're being oppressed, and they're asking the question, where is God in all of this? I thought I was supposed to be blessed so I could be a blessing. And they're surrounded by these Roman soldiers who are running the show, who have all the power, who have all the might, who have all the money, and they're asking the question, what has happened? So Jesus here in Matthew 5, 38 through 41, gives three examples, three examples that we have to remember backing up, that you don't fight violence with violence, but you have to try something else. Three examples of how to fight oppression, how to fight violence, and we find the first one in Matthew 5, 39. Now, before we get to Matthew 5.39, I need a volunteer. Let me see here. Ethan, come on up. Everybody give Ethan a big hand. He has no idea. He has no idea what he's volunteering for, but he's going to be um, a, an example for me. Have a, Just stand right there and face me. Okay. So Matthew 5.39 says this, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, <laughs> good morning. <laughs> oh, by the way, I'm the bad guy in this story. So, just so we're clear about that. Turn to him the other also. Now, you've heard this. If anyone slaps you on the cheek, you turn to him the other also. Now, think about how have you commonly been taught this line from Scripture? What's like the common understanding that maybe a parent or a teacher or a Sunday school teacher told you? It's this, to roll over, to play dead, to be passive, or to be submissive. Now, the opposite of that would be to fight back. Reading this with 21st century eyes, this may be what we would understand for this to mean. Now, let's back up. Let's go to first century Israel in our minds and understand this, that this is gonna blow your mind. In Jewish culture, in Jesus's day, people had a right hand and they had a left hand. Pretty awesome, right? Yeah, okay, just, it gets better. Now, each hand had very practical and symbolic uses. Now, the right hand was considered the clean hand. The right hand was also a symbol for strength 
It was a symbol for power. It was a symbol for skill. So this was your clean hand. This was your hand that you used for eating. You read in the Bible, it says the right hand of God or the right hand of power. Now your left hand was considered unclean. Your left hand was used for performing those daily tasks of maintenance and hygiene that you would clean. And can I stop? Does everybody know what I'm talking about? We good? Thank you very much. I get really uncomfortable really easy. Now, your left hand was considered very unclean, and you would never eat with your left hand, and you would never touch someone with your left hand. No matter how mad you were at someone, no matter how angry or upset you were with them or disliked them, you would never touch them with your left hand. It was just culturally unacceptable and taboo. So Jesus here says this. If someone slaps you on your right cheek, now, this is your right cheek, and you used your right hand to strike someone. You never use your left hand, you always use your right hand. Now, there were two ways, just like in our world, to strike someone. You could punch someone with a closed fist, or you could slap them, like this verse says. If anyone slaps you, the way that you would slap always in this culture was with the back of your hand. And he specifies if someone slaps you on your right cheek. Now, even if I wanted to slap with my hand, you would never slap like that. That just doesn't make any sense. But culturally, what you'd always do is you would slap someone. Sorry, that got a little too close. <laughs> slap someone with, I just want you to know your place, okay? With the back of your hand. Now, this is very, very important. Because what this would do is this would communicate your social status. And this would communicate, the person who would slap someone would communicate the hierarchy, the social structure, the social hierarchy. So you would only ever slap someone that you thought was beneath you. So a master would slap a slave. A father may slap a son because children were always on the bottom of the social totem pole. A husband may, I'm sorry, a husband may slap a wife in that culture. So in slapping someone, you are communicating to them on the right cheek with the back of the hand that you are beneath me. But what does it say? If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the left. Now remember, the Jews were occupied by the Romans and the Romans saw the Jews as beneath them. So if someone, if a Roman were, was to slap a Jew with the back of his hand on the right cheek, and he turned to him to the left cheek, so turn your left cheek to me, I can't slap him on the left cheek with the back of my hand. I'd have to like do that, it wouldn't work. So what is he communicating to me? You would never use your left hand, ever. Taboo in the culture. So what he is doing, his response in this moment, puts the Roman soldier, puts the oppressor, whomever that may be, in a precarious situation. Because in order for me to now strike him on the left cheek, there's only one way I can do that. And that's with a closed fist but what do I communicate if I strike him on the left cheek with a closed fist? I communicate that we're equals. So Jesus gives in this scenario an incredibly practical tool for these oppressed people to upend the entire social structure, the entire social system of the day. So if someone slaps you on the right cheek saying that I am greater than you or you are beneath me, turn to them the left because then you put them in the situation. And in a precarious situation, if they strike you, you're now equals. But now the power has shifted from me to you. 
because if people are watching this and you're in a courtyard with other slaves and the master has, has struck you, everyone is watching what's gonna happen here. If he doesn't strike you back, then he appears to be weak. But if he does strike you, then you are now equals. Everybody give Ethan a round of applause. So Jesus is giving very practical tools to flip the entire power system, the entire social structure on its head to address this issue of injustice in a way that our 21st century eyes and understanding couldn't understand. But verse 40, he goes on. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone sues you, and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, we have to back up and consider these taxation rates again. Think about our condition if we were in this circumstance. When someone comes after you with a lawsuit, they start at the top and they work their way to the bottom. So these people were oppressed, these taxes were levied upon them, and they began to lose everything that they owned. And so the, the Roman oppressors came in and they started by taking their land, by taking their slaves, by taking their goods, by taking their business, they would lose everything. And finally, all that they would have left is the shirt on their back. So they have now lost everything because they have these 80, 75 to 80% taxation rates. They can no longer afford to keep their land. They can no longer afford to keep their slaves, their goods, their business. They have to sell off these lands that have been in their family for centuries. And all they have left is the shirt on their back. And they're totally destitute, totally in shame. So the economy in Israel is failing. These people have shame and they have humiliation of not only their current situation, but feeling like they've let their ancestors down. These lands that have been in their family going back to the initial occupation of the promised land, and they're left with nothingness. Indebtedness was a plague in first century Israel, and it wasn't because of incompetence on the, parts, on the part of the Jewish people, but it was because of the Roman oppression. And so after these people would end up losing everything, they would end up going back to the land that they had, that they had owned only weeks or months before and working as day laborers on this land for a denarius, for a day wage. They became grunts on their own land. So Jesus says here, if someone sues you for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. Now, we have to understand that a first century Jew would have had two garments. They would have had a tunic, which was their outer cloak, and then they were, or outer, their outer garment, and then they would have had a cloak, which was their inner garment, which would have been, would have been like their underwear. There were actually laws in the Torah in the book of Deuteronomy that actually forbid people from taking, if they, someone owed someone else money, if there was a lawsuit, you could take their cloak as a promise to pay their, or their tunic as a promise to pay them back. But you had to return it to them every night so that they could sleep in it so that they wouldn't freeze to death. But in this scenario, Jesus is saying it's gone a step further. It gets so bad that they sue you for your tunic. You've lost everything. You're dealing with a completely ruthless person who doesn't care about the laws of the Torah, most likely a Roman. And Jesus has let them have your cloak as well. 
So any kind of lawsuit like this would have taken place in a public forum, so you would have been in an open court of law. There would have been a judge and a jury. The peers would have gathered to watch what's happening. On, happening. You have lost everything. You're standing there, and you're dealing with a person that's so heartless, so ruthless, that they're willing to take your tunic, you're the last thing that you owe for some probably petty or insignificant reason. But Jesus says that they take your tunic, give them your cloak as well. So if you give them your tunic and you give them your cloak, what are you wearing? Your birthday suit, and it's not your birthday. <laughs> so you're standing there, buck naked, in a public forum, in a public court. This is very significant, and here's why. Because nakedness was taboo, obviously, in first century Israel, but here's what's so interesting. The shame of nakedness, of public nakedness, public nudity, fell less on the naked party than it did on the person viewing or causing the nakedness. Go back to Genesis chapter nine. This is where this all originated. Noah and his family have come off the boat. Noah has his drunken moment. He is not wearing any clothes. His sons view him in his state. Where did the shame fall, according to Genesis chapter nine? It fell on his sons, not on Noah. So the Jewish people carried that with them into the time of Jesus. So this is significant as we talk about this. Because the key thing in this verse 40 is that by stripping the debtor, the one who was in debt, the one who was being sued, who lost everything, brought shame on the creditor and everyone in that court. So the creditor, the one who was seeking to get this tunic, who has has sued this person for everything that they own, risks not that person, not the person they're suing, not their dignity and respect, but their own dignity and respect and the indignation of their peers. And so what happens in this scenario, if you hand them your tunic and you hand them your cloak as well, you are forcing this person who is oppressing you, who is shaming you, who is taking everything that you own to make a choice. Imagine being in a scenario like this where you're so destitute that you're down to nothing but your underwear, standing in a public court, in a public setting, surrounded by neighbors and friends. But Jesus, in his brilliance, teaches how to flip this scenario on its head, how to move from being completely powerless to having equality and power, how to transfer the shame of what is an incredibly broken situation. So here's the question, what does the creditor do? What does the one who is suing the other person do in this scenario? They can sit there covered in shame with the debtor's outer garment, garment, the tunic in one hand, the undergarment in the other, because the tables have now been turned on them. The debtor is the one who's turned the tables, this one who had no hope, the one who had nothing left. Now the law was obviously in the favor of the creditor, the one who was suing, because it had been allowed to go this far. So he obviously had a case And for the powers that be in first century Israel, their foundation was their dignity. But in this moment, by handing over your tunic, by handing over your cloak, the powerless has been empowered. 
And there's a chance here, and what's so brilliant about this is that the chance is that the creditor can see the situation. They can see things unfolding. You've handed your tunic, and they see what's happening next, that you're going for your cloak, and they can stop because the power has now been shifted into the court of the creditor. And what's so awesome about this is, is that what it does is it opens the opportunity for the creditor to have a change of heart, to see the situation and say, no, this is broken, this is wrong, this has gone too far. But how does this work? It doesn't work by fighting violence with violence. It's not an eye for an eye. It's not being passive or being submissive and just simply rolling over and playing dead. It's a creative, alternative, nonviolent response. It's a nonviolent response that publicly unmasks the cruelty of this situation. The person who's destitute, it puts them in a situation that they're not simply gonna be a sponge that's squeezed dry by this selfish person who's just gonna absorb blow after blow. Puts the creditor in a situation to realize that their dignity and the dignity of their peers is worth more than their possessions. And Jesus, in his brilliance, upends this system. Verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, Roman soldiers were everywhere in first century Israel as they have occupied this land. And wherever Roman soldiers were, they carried these packs with them. Each one of their packs historically would have weighed between 50 and 80 pounds. It was kind of everything that they owned, everything that they needed to be a Roman soldier was contained in that pact. Now, the Romans had very strict rules, very strict protocol in place whenever they would conquer a land. And one thing that they could do is they could, they could command someone or demand someone to carry their pack, this 50 to 80 pound bag for them for one mile. Anyone at any time can be compelled to do this. We see this with Simon of Cyrene when Jesus is carrying his cross and he can no longer carry it. The Roman soldier tells Simon to pick up the cross and carry it for Jesus. So imagine that you are a Jew and you're going to the synagogue, you're going to the market, you're going to a school and a Roman legionnaire stops you and tells you that they want you to carry their pack for a mile. Now let's ask a question. Who in this era of the world, prior to the Roman occupation, if you're a Jew and you have a pack yourself, or you have something that weighs 50 to 80 pounds and you need it carried for a long distance, what would you use to carry a pack? You'd use an animal. You'd use a donkey or you would use a mule. And so in doing this, one of these laws, one of the reasons they instituted this law was to dehumanize the people in the lands which they occupied. So the Romans would do this and they would make the Jews feel like animals. So they're treating them like an animal, but they are bound by very strict military code. And their strict military code was this. You could only ask someone, you can only compel someone to carry a pack for you for one mile. To carry any more than that was a serious infraction of their laws and of their military code. And it was, it was punishable by the commanding officer. And one way they would do this is they would flog an offending Roman legionnaire. They would fine them. They would ration their food for a series of weeks. Uh, one thing that they would often have them do is they had to stand carrying their bag in, in a place for 24 hours straight. And if they fell, if they sat down, they had to do it again for 24 hours. So to violate this law would have been a serious infraction and it would have been punishable by the commanding officer. So 
for Roman soldiers, brutal as they were, as dehumanizing as they were in the way they treated the people in first century Israel, it was not worth it for them to break this code because they didn't want to be flogged. They didn't want to be fined. They didn't want to have their food rationed. So they would compel people to carry their bag with them for a mile. So the question is, as we read this, what is Jesus teaching us about how an oppressed person can recover their dignity in this situation? So Jesus says, if you are compelled to carry a pack for a mile, carry it too. So what happens in this story? This Jew is carrying this pack. He carries it. He crosses the one mile mark and he continues to go. What happens? Now the Roman has the shield. The Roman has the sword. The Roman has the power. But what is he forced to do? To make a choice. If I let him keep going and a commanding officer sees this, I'm going to be incredible, incre- like in incredible trouble. So what, it's not worth it to get in trouble to have someone carry your pack for two miles because he can just grab somebody else to do this. But this Jewish citizen keeps going. He goes past a mile and he begins to make his way into the second mile. So this Roman soldier who's got the strength in a military sense, he's got the sword, he's got the shield, he has to stop and he has to beg this Jewish person to please stop, put the bag down. I don't wanna get in trouble because if his commanding officer sees this, he's gonna have nothing but trouble. So again, it's all about a shift of power. By going the extra mile, it's a nonviolent response. It's a shift of power that's not rooted in violence. It's a shift of power that's rooted in generosity. Jesus teaches that power comes through generosity, not through violence. So for the audience in the first century, how would they have responded to this teaching of Jesus? They would have loved it. They would have loved it because they were a hopeless, oppressed people, and Jesus was teaching them a way to have dignity and to feel empowered. But he was teaching them that it's through generosity, and through generosity, it exposes the cruelty of the oppressive systems of the Romans. So let's take a moment to unpack some of these teachings. The original audience of Jesus' day would not have heard these teachings as simply high or lofty gestures of how to be nice. These aren't platitudes for how to be nice and how to befriend your Roman oppressors. Because the options of their culture, just like the options of our culture today, seem to be just simply one of two options. You have option A, which is do nothing, to be passive, to just roll over and to play dead. Or you have option B, to do something violent in return. So there's this kind of passive despair, this we can do nothing about it stance that you can take. You can just, just sit there and you can just take it. Or you can grab a sword and you can fight. You can you know, raise up a little resistance against the Roman rulers, the occupiers of your day, and you can fight, but you're gonna lose. So the options of their culture seem to be similar to the options of ours. Do nothing, take the abuse, take the oppression, or you can stand up and fight. You're probably gonna lose, and at best, you're gonna keep violence, or at worst, you're gonna just keep violence in circulation because violence feeds off of its own energy. It's like John Howard Yoder said, it's like pouring oil on a fire. These two options that are alive and well today in the face of violence and injustice, Jesus says that it's not option A. It's not about doing nothing. It's not option B. It's not to fight fire with fire, violence with violence. He's saying it's another way. It's option C. 
It's what the author Walter Wink calls the third way, the third way of Jesus. It's not option A, it's not option B, it's option C. It's the third way. It's a creative alternative route. It's a nonviolent response to violence. But what I love about these three stories in Matthew 5, what Jesus says here, is he says, turn the other cheek. He says, hand over your cloak. He says, go the extra mile. Turn, hand over, and go. These are verbs. These are all active things to do. These are not passive responses to oppression. These are action-oriented. So Jesus is saying it's not about inaction. It's not about overreaction, but it's a new response. It's an alternative response founded in love and generosity to liberate the oppressed. And there's, there's relational element to these teachings as well. The third way gives the other person, the offending party, the chance to do the right thing. Because if you're passive, we'll take the situation or the scenario of an abused wife. If you're passive and you roll over and you play dead and you take the abuse, you take the violence and you do nothing, the situation most likely isn't gonna change. Or if you overreact and you fight violence with violence, you're probably gonna lose. It's only gonna keep the violence in circulation. It's only gonna escalate the tension. It's only gonna escalate the violence. So Jesus is saying it's not about inaction, it's not about overreaction, but it's an alternative third way, the third way of Jesus. And when you do this, it gives the offending party the opportunity to step back, to consider the situation, to have a change of heart and to repent. When you turn the other cheek, it gives the opportunity for the person to realize that they're not really above you. When you offer their cloak, it allows the other person to ask the question, wait, what am I doing? I'm wrong, this is shameful. When you go the second mile, it causes the Roman soldier to step back and ask the question, what kind of system am I a part of where we treat people and we turn people into animals? And this is the brilliance of what Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 5. We saw this in 1989 in a real-life situation. It was, um, you can see the picture here, a guy called Tank Man. This was after the Chinese government suppressed these um, rallies or these, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? My uh, cold meds are kicking in and I'm losing my, my, my thoughts here. <laughs> the, uh, the riots, that's the word I'm looking for, the riots in Tiananmen Square. So this is the next day after those riots had been suppressed and the tanks began to come in. And this is one of the most iconic pictures in modern history. This guy, simply known as Tank Man, we don't know who he is. No one knows his name. No one knows where he's from. No one knows exactly what he has in his hand. But what did this picture do? It did nothing but simply change the entire opinion of the entire world. It caused the world to look at this and say, well, I know whose side I want to be on. I know who I want to fight for in this scenario. And legend has it that these tanks pulled up, they stopped, he refused to move, the lid opens on the first tank, and the guy who was in the tank tells the story as he stood up out of the top of the tank, tank man, whoever he is, simply asked the question, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? So this was a response not in pass passivity, of simply just bowing down and taking the oppression. 
of the Chinese government. This was not a, he didn't run up and in his bag have a bomb and he taped a bomb to the tank and started blowing things up. This was an alternative third route. This is the way of Jesus. This is where the rubber meets the road in this situation. And it changed the opinion of the entire world. But for us, the one thing I really want us to see today is that the third way is the way of the gospel. It's the way of the gospel. The third way is the heart of the gospel. Because God could have looked down at us and in our our sin, in our brokenness, in our disconnect from him, and simply let us rot away in our brokenness and our hopelessness. God could have taken a passive response to our sin and saying, they've made their choices, I'm gonna let them do their thing and they can just go their own way. Or God could have overreacted. God could have seen us in our sin and wiped us all from the face of the earth. He could have been passive, he could have overreacted. But the heart of the gospel is the third way. Because God chose the third way through Jesus. Jesus who came to be with us, to shift the power of sin in our life and to free us from the power of sin. As Romans 6, 14 says, sin is no longer your master for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. The freedom of God's grace. Sin is no longer your master. And it's no longer our master because God didn't choose a passive response. It's no longer our master because God didn't overreact and simply wipe us away. Why is it no longer our master? Because God chose a third way. God sent his son, Jesus, to suffer our sin and our punishment on the cross to free us from the bondage and the oppression of sin. The gospel and the kingdom of God at its heart and at its core is about liberation. And in this teaching, in the third way, we see that we liberate both ourselves and our opponents and our oppressors from the cages of conflict. Why is that? Because that's what Jesus did. And that's what God did through Jesus in sending him to the earth. But in that, the gospel requires some things of us. The gospel requires that we are to be a people of contemplation and prayer. So when we are facing a scenario when we can either choose to be passive or we can choose to be violent through contemplation, through prayer, through reading God's word and the truth of his word, through seeking the spirit and hearing from God in moments of prayer, we then can become agents of transformation in this world. So we read God's word. We contemplate the truths in scripture. We go to him and we seek his will through, through prayer, the Spirit speaks, the Spirit moves, and we choose a new way to display our humanity, a new way to be human. We choose the third way to be agents of transformation in this world, to liberate ourselves and our opponents, our oppressors from the cages of conflict. But the truth is, is that it involves risk. It involves risk because this goes against everything that we believe, everything our culture teaches us because it involves risk because it's responding not with violence or with cowardice, but daring to be generous in love in our response. Let's pray. God, I continue to be so blown away by the brilliance of your son 
and how he can step into a world that's so broken, that's so sinful, that's so evil, where people are being abused, where people are being oppressed. And he can offer these simple and practical ways to fight oppression, to fight injustice. God, that's beautiful. But God, stepping back from that, to see that at the heart of that, that that is your heart for us. That God, as your people, you wanna see us freed from the bondage of sin, from the brokenness of our situation as we rebelled against you, and you did so through sending your son. God, that you didn't choose to just let us fall away in our sin. God, that you didn't choose to destroy us and wipe us from the earth, God, but you chose a loving way to liberate us, to give us hope, to free us from the bondage of the slavery that we call sin. So God, I pray that as a people right now that we would consider that. God, and that that would stir our hearts and stir our spirits to a new understanding of the way that you love us. But God, in understanding that and having our eyes open to that truth, God, I pray that it would spur us on to love people and to live in a new way. To not be people who are violent, who fight fire with fire, God, but that we live in such a way and we live in a world where we are people who are generous and who are loving. God, who seek new approaches to engaging in relationships with people, an approach that's founded in your love for us. God, an approach that's really hard. It's really difficult because it's unfamiliar. God, let us be people of prayer. Let us be people rooted in your word. God, let us be agents of transformation in this world. God, and at the heart of that, let us be focused on your grace, on your love. God, we wanna give you all the glory. God, we wanna make your name great. We want to be a city on a hill, a light to this world. In your name we pray, amen.